Wayne Watson did a good day's work when he wrote that song. Just a plug for Wayne. I, I, I just don't know anybody that does a better job of fitting more thoughts into a song than Wayne does. He just has an incredible ability to do that. While Joe was singing that, I was thinking about when his dad was dying of uh, cancer. Wayne's dad was dying of cancer. And through the course of that, uh, we prayed together several times and just for God to give grace uh, to his dad. We talked about some of the difficult moments uh, that he had and, and the death of his father and, and um, about his mom and how much she appreciated the fact that she'd gotten prayer cards from this church. And you know, Wayne's been here a couple of times and nobody in this church knows Wayne's mom. I've never met Wayne's mom. But she still talks to this day, almost two years now, about people at Sherwood who prayed for her. It will take eternity for us to know what a difference we've made in people's lives. I don't know that we can measure in the time that God gives us on this earth how much of a difference we can make if we just pray and get before God and do the things that he tells us to do. What I want us to do tonight, and then we're going to break up into some groups. <laughs> Surprised you. Um, what I want us to do tonight is talk about the ultimate wrestling match of intercession. There is nothing more difficult to do than to intercede. I used to think the hardest thing to do was to witness to somebody. I now believe the hardest thing to do is to pray for somebody. And I'm not just talking about God bless so-and-so and God bless so-and-so and get the Lee Greenwood philosophy of prayer, God bless the USA, and I'm talking about getting the heart of God about somebody or some situation and staying with God until his burden and your burden are together, until God breaks your heart with the need of somebody, maybe somebody you don't even know. But we are in a warfare. And when you talk about intercessory prayer, it's not something that we approach casually or should ever approach casually because the soldier that approaches it casually dies. Before I came this afternoon, I was watching a, a movie, one of my favorite movies is the movie Glory. Glory is the story of uh, one of the black regiments that was enlisted during the Civil War to fight for Massachusetts. And as he was dealing, as the Colonel Shaw was dealing with these young men and trying to help them learn how to shoot, nobody could understand why he was so hard on them. But all through the movie, you can see this man putting so much pressure on these young men because they needed to realize it's not just about shooting, it's how quick you can shoot. It's thinking, it's acting, it's reacting. And he was trying to put them in a position where they could be successful and to keep them from getting killed. And he had to do serious and intense training. And he had to abide by some rules that he maybe didn't want to keep. And he had to look at things that he wanted to turn his head and not look at them. But when you and I are interceding for people, we have to get toe-to-toe -to -toe and get serious because we're fighting a spiritual battle. Douglas MacArthur said in April of 1952 that in war there is no substitute for victory. Effective Christian leadership has three keys. First of all, faith. You've got to believe that God wants to do something, that God wants to be involved in the affairs of men. 
Secondly, prayer. You have to believe that God wants you to intercede on behalf of other people. And the third thing is faithfulness to the task. Faith, prayer, and faithfulness to the task, whatever task God calls you to. God calls some people specifically to be intercessors, but he calls all of us to pray. The one thing the disciples asked Jesus was, Lord, teach us to pray. He didn't say, teach us to do miracles, teach us to walk on water. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And we are most like Jesus in his ministry on earth when we understand what it means to pray for other people. When Lieutenant General Sir William Dobie, the governor of Malta during World War II, died, the paper printed his obituary, and this is what it said. His great personal courage, which he demonstrated by active leadership and rescue work during the raids on Malta, was harnessed to a passionate belief in the power of prayer. He read the Bible daily. He never deviated from the belief that divine intervention saved Malta. He depreciated the theory advanced by most that his own conduct and bearing by inspiring others had played no small part. He preferred to regard himself as an instrument. When you and I are praying for other people, we are an instrument in the hands of God to try to help people who may not even be praying for themselves. Now, in Exodus 17, we come to the first battle that Israel has to fight. Uh, they've never had to fight a battle before. At the Red Sea, they didn't have to fight. They were told to stand and see the salvation of the Lord. Now they, they come to the point where they've got to learn to fight. And beginning in verse 8, then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephraim. And so Moses said to Joseph, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joseph did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed, but when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Prayer is not a substitute for action. It is where the action really is. This was new for God's people, being involved in a battle, but the Amalekites were standing in the way on their advance to the Promised Land. They had never had to fight like this before. Now, let me just give you a little background on the Amalekites. They were descendants of Esau, who sold his birthright. Esau was a man who was impulsive, who was impatient, who did not fear God, who would not count the cost of his decisions. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 16 says, he was profane and godless. The word profane in Latin means outside the temple. 
Esau was a man who lived his life outside the temple, outside of God's blessings, outside of God's will. And Amalek was a tribe of people that lived outside the temple. They were profane and they were godless people and they attacked Israel at the rear guard. They came up behind them and surprised them. Now Deuteronomy 25 and verse 17, let me just read it to you. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked you among all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Now let's look at four characteristics of Amalek's attack because they are very similar to the way Satan attacks us when we get serious about the things of God. First of all, it was sudden and unexpected. It was sudden and unexpected. They were not ready for it. And oftentimes we are surprised by the way Satan attacks us because we're not prayed up enough to see him coming. They were ambushed, and they shouldn't have been. And we have to understand, if we're going to win the battles of life, we have to be ready for surprise attacks. A couple of years ago, I guess, uh, John, you and I talked about it the first time. A couple of years ago, the Lord really showed me something about the way the enemy works. And when I saw this, my eyes opened to how Satan is active in a, trying to attack and destroy churches and individuals. Satan, here's the principle that I learned. Satan always plays his trump card early. He shows his hand too quick. Now, if you're not ready for it, it looks like a surprise. But if you know he shows his hand quickly and quicker than he should because he's impatient, see? He's impatient. He's just so anxious to destroy what God's doing. He'll rush to do something because he has no patience in him. He's the opposite of God. And so he rushes to show something, and if you just watch him show his hand, you'll know what his move is going to be. We shouldn't be surprised. We're not ignorant brethren. There is a denomination of ignorant brethren, but we're not them. Paul said, I would not have you ignorant brethren. And there's some ignorant brethren I would not have, but uh, be that as it may. We are not ignorant of what? His devices. Now, if you get surprised by an attack of the enemy, it's because you're not in a position where you're watching for him to come. You need to always be ready for him to come. Sudden and unexpected. Be sober of spirit and be on the alert, Peter says. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Secondly, it was an act of defiance. It was an act of defiance. Remember that he said they did not fear God. Every time Satan moves, it's in an act of defiance against God. He does everything he can to defy the will of God. Although defeated, he's still defiant. Number three, it was in the shadow of blessing. Now, notice that this happened when they had just seen the miracle of water from the rock at Rephidim. The word Rephidim means resting place. Resting place. It was in the shadow of blessing. And what, the, what I see here is that the minute we begin to take it easy, we're open for an attack. The minute that you and I think, boy, you know, I just need just a little time off. I just, you know, I just need to coast a little bit. I just need to 
to not push so hard. I, I, I need to just kind of take it easy and just relax. That's the moment when the enemy comes up and gets you. When you let your guard down, he's always watching. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, trying to find the one that he can get his hands on, trying to find the one who has let their guard down. And then fourthly, it was strategically planned. This was not a random attack of some tribe of nomads. These people had an intentional purpose to hurt the people of God, to sidetrack them, to damage their morale. It was intentionally planned. It was strategically planned. And Satan has a plan to undermine your life. Those of you who were here several years ago for our wild game dinner remember John Morgan talking about how a lion will begin to stalk its prey. When a lion stalks its prey, let's say that there are four native guides and six hunters from America and they go out into the bush to hunt a black-maned lion. When the lion begins to see them, and the lion sees them a long time before they see him, the lion makes an immediate choice whether to go after the natives or to go after the hunters. He distinguishes between the two groups. After the lion distinguishes between those two groups, then he gets down to the one that he's going to attack. And when he begins to decide which one he will attack out of that party of ten, nothing will stop him from going after the one. The others shooting at him will not distract him. He will ignore everybody else in that party for the moment to find the weakness in the one that he is going after. And he will stalk, and he will crawl, and he will wait, and he will be patient until he can go after the one. And the only way to keep him from getting the one that he's after is for the other ones to kill him. Satan's like that. In fact, the devil will wait a long time before he pulls the rug out from under you and before he comes after you. That's the danger in that we think we get away with sin and we think we get away with prayerlessness and we think we get away with our inconsistent living. But you see, the devil's got a date on his calendar when he's going to come after you and you and you and you and you and you and you. And when he comes after you, he's going to take all the forces of hell and he's going to go for you because he wants to destroy your testimony. And when he comes for you, if you're not prayed up, you're going to get run over. There is a day on his calendar when he has your name circled and your life circled where the enemy will no longer send a demon, no longer will send circumstances. He will come himself to attack you, to destroy you. The church of Satan is praying even today for the downfall of every pastor and minister in America. And I know pastors and churches that tell me they don't know of one person that's ever said to them, I'm praying for you. But somebody in the church of Satan is praying against them. You see, the enemy's attack are strategically planned. Now, there's a spiritual battle, and we learned some lessons here, and I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Several years ago, we did a study on each piece of the armor that we are to put on and wear, and so... Uh, we'll not take time to do that, but I want to read this passage because sometimes we stop in this passage at verse 17, and we don't need to. What Paul does here is Paul takes an illustration of a Roman soldier, 
And in illustrating the Roman soldier, he talks about how we are to be prepared for spiritual warfare, and ultimately what we're prepared for is prayer. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, if the devil's got a plan, a strategic plan to attack you, then you better have the armor on so that you can stand against it. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, you may have marked all these verses before, but I want you to mark verse 18 because you do all of that to do what verse 18 says. You put on all that armor so you can get to verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints." All the armor, for all the prayer, for all the saints. And what are you supposed to do? Run around and try to cut people's heads off? No. To stand. All of that armor has one reason. For you to stand firm in your faith and stand firm in the warfare and to stand firm in prayer. The purpose of the armor is to stand and pray. The purpose of the armor is not for you to picket. The purpose of the armor is not for you to protest. The purpose of the armor is not for you to write letters to the editor. The purpose of the armor is for you to pray. That's it. You say, well, I don't feel like I'm doing enough. You start praying and you'll find out that's all you've got time to do. You see, prayer is a battle, and God knows that the hardest thing we ever have to do is to pray. Our most evil thoughts, our biggest sense of failure comes when we're praying. The greatest accusations against us come to our minds when we are praying because the devil knows if you're on your knees, he's in trouble. So we have to come and stand firm and behind every battle and every blessing, there is an intercessor. In every battle in my life, there's also been a blessing, and I can usually go back and know that there's been an intercessor praying for me. Somebody has been lifting up my name before the Lord. It, it will take eternity for me to know the things I've been spared of because somebody prayed for me in a moment when I was weak, when I wasn't ready for the battle, when I myself had my armor down or off, and I wasn't prepared for what the enemy was about to throw at me. And somebody prayed and stood in the gap on my behalf. Daniel in the lion's den, the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, and Acts chapter 12, Peter was in prison and the church prayed. The prayer is the battleground. And listen, our victory 
is in direct proportion to our prayers. Our victory in the Christian life is in the direct proportion to our prayers. David Brainerd, the great missionary, who was known to pray so hard and so long that he would soak his clothes in sweat while praying out under a tree in a snowstorm. Brainerd wrote in his journal after one intense time of prayer, my joints were loosed, the sweat ran down my face, and my body as if it would dissolve. Real intercession is like wrestling. Now, I'm not talking about the fake stuff. I'm not talking about that fake stuff where they tell each other what move they're about to do so they know where to throw them. You know, that's all showmanship. I'd like Austin 316 to try to get in a wrestling match with the devil in prayer and find out who'd win that one. You see, that's joke stuff. I mean, it's stupid. Those guys are actors. They're paid to be actors. Sometimes we say, oh, we're wrestling. Oh, I see. Oh, uh, uh, jump. And what's happened is we think that prayer is fake because wrestling is fake today. Not the wrestling Paul's talking about. The wrestling Paul talking about is somebody's trying to take you to the mat and take your life out. Somebody's after you. And we are in a wrestling match, and we have to face our enemy face to face, and we have to resist him, and we have to know how to resist him. Now, what are the elements of effective intercessory prayer? Well, let's just look at the passage in Exodus chapter 17. First of all, a sword. First of all, there's a sword. Joshua was fighting in the battle with a sword. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, here's what that means when you're praying. That means when you're praying, don't tell God what you think. Tell God what His Word says. Okay? Your opinion doesn't count. And you can go to God and say, you know, Lord, I, I think this is the way you ought to handle this. That's, that's a waste of time. Don't tell God what you think. You take the Word of God before God and you stand before the throne of God in prayer and you stand before God and you say, God, this is what you say in your Word. This is how you say life is supposed to be. This is how you've told us to pray for the nations. This is what you've told us to do. This is what you've said about this sin. And God, I'm asking you to honor your Word, not my opinion, not me, your Word. You take the sword of the Spirit into prayer. That's why when you go into intercession, you need to take your Bible because you need to pray the Scriptures back to God. I always tell people, if you don't know what to pray, pray the Scriptures. I mean, let's just, let's just take one real quick. Say there's a time of anxiety and pressure going on in your life. We're going to do this one day in Soul Food Cafe, but let's say there's a time of anxiety and pressure, and you take Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And just start praying about what the Lord. The Lord, that means he's the boss, that means he's the master, that means he's in charge, that means he's on the throne. You start thinking about all the things that the Lord, and you say, now, Lord, you're the Lord. The Lord is, depends on what you mean by is. The Lord is my shepherd. What does the shepherd do? He watches out for dumb sheep. 
who will eat so much that they'll just continue to walk and walk right off a cliff because they don't have enough sense to look around, who will be killed by wolves because they don't have enough sense to fight, nor do they have the equipment to defend themselves. The psalmist says, the Lord, the one who sits on the throne, is my shepherd when the enemy's coming after me. He's the one that has the rod and the staff in his hand and knocks that thing away and says, get away from me. He's the one that stands before you when the accuser is standing before you. He's the one that walks you through the hard times. He's the one that walks you through the valleys. He's the one that takes your interest to mind. He knows you by name, remember. He's a shepherd that knows his sheep, and his sheep hear his voice. So you take the Scripture, you take the sword of the Spirit, and you say, God, here's what you've said. Here's what you've said. Now, Lord, either your word's true or you're a liar but you're going to have to honor your word. God is not frightened by us boldly approaching him about what his word says. That's why he gave it to us. Secondly, a staff. Moses took a staff, and he used it so many times as an instrument of deliverance. What the staff is is a symbol of past victories. A symbol of past victories. Because I'm going to tell you, in the middle of a battle, you'll forget that you've won any other battle. You'll start looking at the circumstances and say, you know what, I just don't know if the Lord will come through. How do you know the Lord will come through? Because he came through in the past. Because he answered prayers in the past. Because he intervened in the past. Because he met your need in the past. That's why you need to keep a record of the things that God does, because we tend to forget. Moses had that staff with him, and every time he held that staff, he'd think, you know... I remember the Red Sea. I remember that, you know, I threw this staff down there and that thing turned into a snake and then I picked it up by the tail, which is the thing I learned you don't do with a snake, and I picked that thing up and it turned back into a staff again. Oh, I see, God's in control. See, the staff was a reminder that God was in control. In fact, the scripture doesn't call it the rod of Moses. It calls it the rod of God. It was just in Moses' hand, but it belonged to God. The third thing you take is an attitude of surrender. Now, it says that Moses lifted up his hands, which was a customary practice in Jewish prayer. We've talked about this before, that it was a sign of surrender. You know, we know that from watching Gunsmoke and Bonanza. You know, uh, I mean, it was a sign of surrender. When you lifted up your hands, it, it was surrender. You know why some of us don't get our prayers through? Because we've never surrendered. We're still trying to run our lives. We're still trying to put our hands on all the situations. We're still trying to tell God how to do it. We haven't come to the point of just throwing our hands up and saying, Lord, I give up. I quit. I surrender. If anything good's going to come out of this, you're going to have to do it. Lord, I give it to you. Now, let me just make a little side note here. In James chapter 5 and verse 17, when it says Elijah prayed, that word literally means he prayed within his prayer. With prayer, he prayed. You know, you can pray and not pray. Elijah prayed within his prayer. He got down to business with God. He wasn't just rattling off words. And when Moses lifted up the staff, it was a sign of surrender. And when he said, Lord, we can't win this battle. We're not trained fighters. Amalek is too strong. He's come at us from behind, and we're, we're in trouble, and Lord, the battle is in before me, and I see what's going on, and, and Lord, we, we surrender to your will. By the way, that's part of intercession is just surrendering. 
to the will of God. That God may not answer the way we want him to, but he always answers the way that brings him the most glory. There's a fourth thing. This may seem a little odd, but there's a team spirit. A team spirit. That's why you cannot have people who gossip involved in intercessory prayer ministries because everybody's got to protect everybody else. That's the only way you can be honest. Now, just mark Acts chapter 12 and verse 5, which says, So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being fervently made by the church of God. The word fervently carries the idea of laying hands on someone or stretching your hands out to grab someone. Acts says that when they prayed for Simon Peter in prison, they were laying hands on him. They were stretching out to him. He was in prison. They were locked up in a house in fear, but they were praying for, for Peter, and they were stretching out toward him. They said, Lord, God, you know where he is. You know this need. Lord, we just want to grab hold of him. We want to bring him to us. Of course, they were surprised when God did it. You know, angel comes, opens the gate. Peter gets out and knocks on the door. Who is it? Peter. Can't be Peter. We're in here praying for him. No, who is it really? It's Simon Peter. You can't be there because we're all concerned in here praying for you. We don't have time to come to the door. We're praying for Simon Peter to get out of jail. Peter's going, hello, here I am. You ever been surprised by the fact that God actually answered a prayer? The church was. Even in the wake of Pentecost, they were surprised that God answered a prayer. You see, all of us have a lot to learn about the way God works, don't we? Intercession involves identification and intercession demands agape love. Intercession involves identification and it demands agape love. There's team spirit. Notice Moses was not alone. Aaron and her were with him. He needed their presence and support. Now let me tell you why sometimes, not all the time, but we have to do intercession alone. But let me tell you why, why sometimes it's good for us to pray together. Let, let's, say, let's say this is, we're all intercessors right here, okay? and we're praying about something, and I start praying about it. And while I'm praying, God lays on Russell's heart, say, you know, Russell, here's what I want you to pray about in that situation. And so Russell starts praying about something I didn't even think about. And we come down here, and Dawn, she starts praying about something else, and Tony prays about something else, and Terry prays about something else, and all of a sudden, you know what we've done? We've covered all the bases. That's what intercessory group prayer does. It covers all the bases because while you're praying and those other people are seeking God, God is laying on their heart. Now, here's something they haven't thought about, but I'm going to show it to you. Now, don't feel like you got slighted. It's just that God shows different people different things. But God will tell Russell how to pray differently about that than he'll tell me. He'll tell Tony how to pray differently than he tells me, but what's he doing? God's got a team spirit going. We're all praying for the same thing. That's the will of God and the glory of God but we're going to pray about it from different angles. And when there's a team spirit, it's not that one group prays better than another group. It's that we're all praying for God to work. Let me tell you what intercessors are. Intercessors are stretcher bearers. When it says they, they were lifting out their hands, they were reaching out their hands, uh, praying fervently for Simon Peter, you know what we are when we're intercessors? We're like those four guys that took their invalid friend to Jesus and they dug a hole in the roof and got him down in the presence of God. We're stretcher bearers. We take those names on prayer cards and we carry them to Jesus so that Jesus can do something about what's wrong in their life. You and I are stretcher bearers. 
And we have to have a team spirit, and we have to stand together. Now, uh, what is the place of intercession? You're going to have to think with me on this one, okay? First, it's two places. It's on a hill, and it's with a clear view. Moses was praying on a hill up above the battle where he could see what was going on down in the battle. And he was praying with a clear view. He knew who was struggling. He could look out and see which person was falling and which one was failing and which group was backing up and which group was going forward. So let me tell you where the place of intercession is. The place of intercession is where you get God's vantage point, wherever that is, where you get God's vantage point, where you get yourself in a position where you can see what God sees and hear what God hears and know what God knows. You get up above the fray. In the middle of the fray, sometimes you don't have time to stop and to get the whole perspective on the situation. And you're rushing through the moment, but you get away from it. And you back up and you get with your word and you get along with God and you get his perspective and you see life the way he sees it. And you see the things that he begins to show you about that situation, the dangers of intercession. Number one, fatigue. Fatigue. Battles are hard work. That's why armies need R&R. Intercession is hard work. Moses had to sit down. Joshua didn't get to sit down. He was out there with a sword fighting all the time, but Moses got exhausted. You've got to remember, Moses was 80 years old. He had a right to sit down. And Moses is praying, but he needs some rest. There's fatigue. And so he gets Aaron and Hur to stand on the side of him, and they hold up his arms because he's too exhausted to hold his arms up. Here's the contrast. Three disciples with Jesus on the last night of his earthly ministry. Jesus comes to them and says, Could you not watch and pray with me for one hour? And Moses prayed all day until the sun was set. Prayer is exhausting. I mean, if you ever get a burden in your heart for somebody to pray for them, it is exhausting to pray for them because you're giving away part of your life on their behalf. Secondly, discouragement. Another danger of intercession is discouragement, that we fail to pray it through, or we think that God's going to answer it immediately. We either fail to pray it through, or we think God will answer it immediately. But you see, God doesn't answer all our prayers on the spot or in the moment. Some he does. But more often than not, he always says, you're going to have to wait for this one. You're going to have to trust me here. Martin Luther said, Dear Lord, although I am sure of my position, I am unable to sustain it without thee. Help me, or I am lost. Martin Luther said, I'm sure of my position, but I can't sustain it unless you help me. Number three, an absence of praise. One of the dangers of intercession is an absence of praise. Remember the raising the arms and the hands was a way of surrender, but it was also a sign of exalting and praising God. And when we raise the hands, what it's saying is a sustained prayer has to have an element of praise to it. You can't just ask all the time. If all you do in intercession is ask, then you'll lose perspective. You'll forget that God answers. And you just keep asking when God's already provided an answer. There comes a point in intercession when God says, quit asking me and start thanking me. Quit asking me to do that. 
Quit acting on the evidence and start thanking me that it's going to be done. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Number four, we will quit before we win the victory. We will quit before we win the victory. I want you to notice verse 11. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Now, I, I don't have any problem with the first part of that verse. Moses held his hand up, Israel prevailed. Boy, yes, God's working. You know, boy, we're making some headway now. We're seeing things happen now. Amalek's finding out who he's messed with, and he's messed with the wrong crowd. But when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Now, we don't think it ought to read that way. You know, at best we think when, when Moses let his hands down, everything kind of went to a standstill. You know, they just kind of squared off and waited for the next one to throw the next punch. Uh, they just kind of looked at each other, but, but we can't believe that Amalek would prevail. Now, here's what's significant about this verse, the, what the word prevail means. The word prevail means to give strength or increase strength. When Moses held up his hands, Israel gained strength and increased in strength. And when he let his hands down, Amalek gained strength and increased in strength. When Moses stopped doing what he was supposed to be doing, Amalek got stronger. Now, a couple of things that you need to know here. Don't underestimate the power of the enemy because he's looking for an opportunity when you let your guard down. Don't underestimate the power of the enemy. He's looking for the moment when you let your hands down. Number two, when we are weak in prayer, we expose ourselves to an enemy attack. When we are weak in prayer, we expose ourselves to an enemy attack. It, it is frightening to me to think about this, and I almost even hate to admit it and say it, but I can look at the times when we have struggled as a church, and I can go back and look at the number of hours we've had filled in the intercessory prayer chapel, and when the prayer chapel's not going well, the church does not go well. When the prayer chapel is going well, the church goes well. This church rises and falls on its prayer ministry. And we've put ourselves in a position where God knows that we know that. And so when we let our hands down, the enemy prevails. But I want you to notice something. That word prevail means to give strength. <coughs> Prayer not only contains the enemy, it pushes him back. Prayer not only contains the enemy, it pushes him back. Didn't Jesus say something? It seems like I heard it somewhere. That the gates of hell will not prevail against the church now gates are not offensive gates are defensive which means when the church is prevailing it's pushing the gates of hell back it's backing up the darkness it's moving the light into places where it's never been 
It's moving forth in ways that it's never moved forth before. And God has called us to push the enemy back, but when we let our hands down, the enemy starts pushing us back. You see, God wants us on the front lines and to never settle for half-hearted praying. If I had anything to do over again in my ministry, I would not study more. I wouldn't have more meetings. I would have spent more time in prayer. Because there have been too many days in my life when I've tried to do God's work in the energy of my flesh. When I've tried to go out and fight spiritual battle with carnal weapons of my mind and my education and my skills and my talents, and every time I do that, I get kicked in the teeth. Only when I pray does God use me the way he wants to use me. Everything else becomes wood and hay and stubble. But when I pray, God changes it. And I want to say very emphatically for me and for us that our prayer ministry, or the lack of it, is the legacy of this church. Not our buildings, not our budget, not our programs, not our staff, not our pastors. The legacy of this church is tied totally in eternity and before God to the level of our praying. That is our only legacy. God will only applaud us to the level with which we did the thing that he said was important. Amalek would show up again. Israel would fight them at Kadesh Barnea and lose in Numbers chapter 14. Gideon would conquer them in Judges chapter 6. King Saul was ordered to exterminate them, and he didn't. Years later, Saul would commit suicide, and an Amalekite would bring the news to David. Isn't it ironic? The things that you don't deal with in prayer always come back to haunt you. And Saul, told to kill all the Amalekites, don't leave a one of them breathing, didn't do it. And when he committed suicide, it was an Amalekite who went to David and said, Saul is dead. And the only reason he could say that is because Saul disobeyed God and let him live. Whatever it is we do not deal with in prayer, we will be defeated by at some point in our life. 